0: It was a normal day. It was just a normal spring day. And I went to sit down at my desk. A coworker who was seven months pregnant sat down beside me. I turned to ask her what she needed and never had a chance to say the words. The bomb went off. I was on the third floor, front and center of the federal building. I faced the glass windows there. And I remember just hearing this incredible roaring in my head and feeling this rushing sensation, like I was falling. And I was falling, I was falling three floors.
1: Life is a journey and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something.
2: These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world. And we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories.
1: Now more than ever, we need each other and we need each other's stories. This is On The Other Side. Hey there, we're your hosts of today's show. I'm Jamie. And I'm Aaron. What's up? Today we're talking with Amy Downs, and I want to let you know two things. Number one, this conversation is amazing. I also want to let you know that we talk about her story of surviving the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995, and she talks about some details of that, so I just want to let you know that ahead of time. Amy was actually working inside the federal building on April 19th, 1995, When Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols killed 168 people with the deadliest domestic-based terrorist attack in the history of the United States on that day.
2: Her story is unbelievable as she talks about not only being rescued and her life being spared, but also the transformation that she experienced in her life.
1: We're going to spare you from all the transformation that takes place in her life because she's going to tell us about it today. I just need to let you know, Amy took tragedy and she took grief and she turned it into hope with success and victory in her life
2: here's amy's story of on the other side of the oklahoma city bombing
1: amy we are so excited to have you on the show today and your story is one that is unbelievable full of hope full of resilience and so we're excited to hear about your life and your story now I want to start with Oklahoma City. And so if you could take us back to pre-April 19th, which, uh, you know, Aaron and I were both in our 40s and I can say I remember where I was on April 19th. You obviously very clearly remember where you were, but can you take us back before the Oklahoma City bombing? What was your life like then? Yeah, well, I grew up in Louisiana,
0: actually. And in the in the '80s, graduated in the '80s, and the only thing I had going for me was amazing '80s hair. Because yeah. <laughs> for those Come of you who are young, like the '80s were like great rock music and great hair.
2: Great hair, and
0: you know that was about the only thing I had going for me. I had flunked out of college because I could not pass a remedial math class, and I thought with those amazing math skills that I would move to Oklahoma City kind of make a brand new start. My sister lived here and I was going to take those amazing math skills and be a teller at a financial institution Mm because, you know, that made sense. Yeah. And so I applied for and got a job at a credit union inside the federal building in downtown Oklahoma City. And I had been working there for about seven years when the bombing occurred. So my life had gone from flunking out of college, and then actually continuing to get worse. My Mm. personal life was a bit of a mess. I turned to food as my, you know, unhealthy coping mechanism and had gained about 200 pounds. And in addition, I had walked away basically from my faith. I mean, it wasn't like a moment Mm. where I decided I was an atheist or agnostic or anything like that. It just, it was a slow slipping away. Yeah. So my life was really kind of spiraling downward.
2: Mm. And
0: that's where I was at that point in time in my life on April 19th, 1995.
1: So can we talk about April 19th? Can you go through that day and kind of let us know, for those of us who who weren't there and only have memories based on media, what was that like for you actually being in the building when the bombing occurred? Yeah, I, I feel like
0: everybody's story of trauma almost always starts out with like, it was just a normal day, right? Hmm. And you get the yeah. diagnosis or you have the breakup or whatever the thing is. And it was a normal day. It was just a normal spring day. And I went to sit down at my desk. A coworker who was seven months pregnant sat down beside me. I turned to ask her what she needed and never had a chance to say the words. The bomb Mm
1: -hmm. went
0: off. I was on the third floor, front and center of the federal building. I faced the glass windows there. And I remember just hearing this incredible roaring in my head and feeling this rushing sensation like I was falling. And I was Mm -hmm. falling. I was falling three floors. I found out later I was still in my chair, upside down, buried under about 10 feet of rubble. Wow. I could not move. I couldn't see anything. Like I strained to open my eyes to see, and everything was just pitch black and couldn't move, and it was hot and dark. And did you I lose consciousness? Been... No, not that I'm aware of, because I remember okay. hearing the sound of it. I remember feeling falling. I Remember hearing this woman screaming, Jesus, help me right in my ear. And then me realizing that was me. That was me screaming. Oh wow. oh, wow. And then I remember it getting quiet and me continuing to to yell, like, help me, please help me. And nothing, hearing nothing, but like maybe somebody moaning off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling out to that girl who was sitting next to me, wondering if she was around and not hearing anything. And then hearing a siren going off. So, I mean, there's, I I remember a lot of what occurred. So I don't think I did lose consciousness. Mm -hmm. If I did, it would have been very briefly. Yeah. And then I remember hearing men's voices and the timeline was, it was about 45 minutes before they came in looking for survivors. And the men were saying, let's split up. Let's look for the daycare babies. And I was confused by that because I worked on the third floor. We had a daycare in the building on the second floor. And Mm. I didn't realize we were all at the bottom of what once was the federal building, this nine story building. So I started screaming, you know, and this guy says, I hear you. I hear you, child. How old are you? And I remember like. Kind of pausing because I was like, do I yell too? Like, you know, I right, do right. have this feeling that if I tell him I'm 28, he's not gonna come get me because they're looking for babies, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm I'm 28. And he said, That's okay. And he starts yelling, we have a live one, we have a live one, I need help, I need backup. And he said, We can't see you. Keep talking to us. You have to keep talking to us. We've got to follow the sound of your voice. So I asked what happened, and they told me it had been a bomb. Now here's the deal. You know, unfortunately, we now know what a car bomb is, you know, we right. know yeah. what that is. But at that point in time in my life in the United no. States, like I did not know what that was. That right. wasn't a thing. That was something if you did hear about it, it was over in some in Europe mm-hmm. country at war yeah. with somebody. Yeah. Like it didn't happen in Oklahoma, you know. Right. And so it took me a little bit to piece together that this bomb that had happened was actually only our building because I was thinking it was the city like I was confused Mm -hmm. I couldn't Mm -hmm. figure it out so by the time they get to me and they uncover my right hand it was sticking out of the side of this rubble pile I'm in my chair still upside down buried under 10 feet of rubble and my hand that was sticking out of the side of this rubble pile so they grab my hand and I'm thinking they're getting ready to one two three you know pull me up and out And about this time, I hear men yelling in the background, there's another bomb. There's another bomb. We need everybody out now. Let's go. Let's go. There's another bomb. So at this point, I realize, you know, that it was a bomb. There's another one. And I can't go anywhere. Mm. So I just start telling my rescuers, tell my family I love them, repeating my name and they left and it was it was what a lot of people you know describe as life flashing before your eyes where you are suddenly just faced with the reality for me i was faced with the reality that i'm getting ready to die Mm. and i never really lived and Mm. i had wasted and just squandered my life you know just floating complacently from one day to the next and before i realized it i was 28 years old And had nothing really to show for my life. Mm. And I was filled with just regret. I can't even Mm. describe the heavy regret I felt. And I, remember laying there trying to remember a scripture because I had grown up in church and you know, we used to have to memorize scripture for like candy in children's church.
2: Right. <laughs> which
0: first of all, I hope they've stopped that. Not, I know that. that's I'm not good. Like, you know, maybe yeah. that had something to do with the weight. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I was trying to remember the scripture though. I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but that was the only part of the scripture I could remember. Mm. And I remember laying there thinking, <laughs> the irony of that right like that's just great like i don't know what comes next with the scripture and i don't know what comes next like literally and i'm in the yeah. valley of the shadow of death wow. and i just i've been praying pretty much the whole time but like i started taking praying to a whole nother level mm. Um, it's called bargaining mm-hmm. yeah. and so you know i'm like promising god everything if i could yeah. just have a second chance just get me out you know just desperate and then at some point, of all the kind of weird things to do, I started singing. And I'm mm. not a singer; I don't sing great. Well, unless I'm like in my car alone, and then I'm. Then you're, like, right, the and then you're awesome. Yeah, I'm <laughs> good then. You know, but I started singing this praise and worship song, and it was "I love you, Lord," and I lift my voice to worship mm. you. Oh, my soul, take joy, my king, in what you hear and let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Just a simple praise and worship chorus from back in the day. And I started singing the song and I felt peace when that happened. I felt peace and I didn't know I was going to make it out alive. I really did think that I was getting ready to die, but I was okay with what was getting ready to happen. And of course, there wasn't a second bomb. And that's why I'm here today. And so they came back and it wasn't as easy as one, two, three, pull me out. They had to work um, a total of six and a half hours to get me out. Wow. And can I interrupt you Mm -hmm. real quick?
1: What was the time from when they left you, from when you're having the moment, you're singing and you think there's a second bomb? How long was that until you found out I'm actually not going to die like I thought I was? Right. I had been told that was about 45 minutes as well. So I was was alone for 45 minutes in
0: the beginning before they found me and then another 45 minutes during this bomb scare. And so during this time, the rescuers, I found out later they were risking their lives to get me out in one piece because the building had become... You know, it was very unstable what was I'm left sure, of right, it. Yeah, right. And the wind, Oklahoma, we've got wind. And the wind was picking up and the debris was swaying back and forth. And it was just, it was not a safe situation. So they were talking, I could hear this. I couldn't ever see anything, but I could hear them. And they were talking to an emergency physician about amputating my leg. Mm. And I remember calling out to them and saying, Hey, if you guys need to chop something off to get me out, just chop it off. You know, yeah. like it's amazing the bravery that you'll have in before, that moment. You know, when you think you're gonna mm. die. And mm-hmm. I'm like, just do whatever you've gotta do, just get me out. But they kept saying, give us 20 more minutes, give us 20 more minutes. And at the end, I remember they said, we're gonna count to three, this is probably gonna hurt. And of course, I'm like, I don't care, do yeah. whatever. Yeah. And they counted to three and they pulled and I came out from under the rubble. I remember looking around and just thinking, this is not real, mm. This I'm in a movie. Like mm-hmm. yeah. the only thing that I could even try to describe to anybody is it looked like a war zone out of a movie because I didn't have a reference point to even describe this destruction. Yeah, They put me on the gurney. They took me out of the back of the federal building. And what once had been this beautiful spring morning was now cold and dark. It was starting to rain. But I remember taking that first breath of fresh air and filling my lungs and promising God I would never live my life the same. Hmm. I didn't know the extent of my own injuries. I didn't know about my friends. There were 33 of us that worked at that credit union, and we were a pretty close group, mostly women. And they took me to an ambulance. And I remember the nurse asked me, when's the last time you had a tetanus shot? And all that bravery, don't know where that went. That's when I fell apart. I lost it lost it on that poor guy. Like I started bawling, crying. I He was, he didn't know what to do with it. He was like, I'm getting my supervisor. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want a shot here. Like what? Two hours before I'm like, chop my leg, leg off. off. If need to. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, I don't want a shot. So they took me to the hospital. I got the shot. And I would find out over the next eight days in the hospital that 18 of my 33 coworkers were killed.
2: Oh my goodness. The, the
0: girl who was seven months pregnant sitting next to me. She was killed. My best work buddy. She had two-year-old, three-year-old baby girls at home. She was killed. I mean, just, it was, the grief was overwhelming, mm. just mm. overwhelming. Mm. And so, you know, I look back and of course, over 26 years, I've changed my life a lot, but it's not like cue the Rocky music. I went running out of the hospital, yeah. like ready right. to take on the world. It it was dark for yeah. for a couple of years it was very dark
1: you know when i think about you being in the hospital and i've heard this from other people who have experienced great trauma like that but that they survived is that there was a lot of guilt of why me Did you walk through that in those early days? And how did that play out even in the past 26 years? Oh, the
0: survivor guilt is just terrible. It started in the hospital because, you know, they were trying to identify bodies. And sometimes it was through clothing, pieces of clothing, what they were wearing. And while I was in the hospital, family members of my coworkers started calling, asking if I remembered what they were wearing that day. Oh,
2: wow. And I
0: had spent the first hour of my day running around chatting with all my friends. Talked to all of them because I was getting ready to close on my first house. I was excited. I was showing them pictures of my house. Could not tell you what anybody had on Mm. except for my best friend because she wore a bright yellow suit because she was trying to wear a power suit. That's what they called it back in the day, a power suit. Uh And she picked out a yellow suit and she was like, I think I look like a big old yellow sunflower. This did not work. And she was really funny. And so that's the only person I remembered because she had commented about her yellow suit. And I felt so guilty that I had talked to everybody and I I couldn't remember what they had on. Wow.
1: Wow. And
0: so then later of course, you know, I remember when they found they had definitely identified my my best friend Sonia's body just sobbing because she had two-year-old and three-year-old baby girls at home. Like who was I to live
1: mm.
0: when these little girls lost their mama, you know? I mean, mm. yeah. Mm. And mm. so, yeah, it's a bit of a gut punch sometimes. The girl next to me who was seven months pregnant, i struggled with her the most because When she sat down to talk to me, I don't know, I guess I was in a mood because I'd been goofing off all morning. So now I'm going to sit down and start working. And now you want to come talk to me and I've got things to do, you know, so I was kind of signing on my computer and doing everything but asking her what she needed. And I've thought through that so many times, like if I would have asked her what she needed when she first walked in, you know, if she just needed something really quick, she probably would have gone on down the hall. To the restrooms she probably mm. would have been okay like oh i just you know you're not supposed to do that and they tell you that yeah whatever like you do it you can't help it
2: your, your story i mean i don't know that everybody fully realizes that the oklahoma city bombing was the worst domestic terrorism in america i think 168 people died That's right. one event. Is
0: it still the greatest? Yes, it is. Domestic. You know, it is.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, you're talking about grief and you mentioned in your book, you compare grief to like fertilizer in your garden. You love gardening. Can you talk a little bit about how grief ended up turning into hope? Because you're so full of hope. You write about that in your book. You speak about it. How did it evolve into that, though?
0: Well, you know, the the grief process, I, I described it as like an ocean like a tide, like you're standing on the beach and sometimes the wave comes in and it just sort of barely touches your feet, you know, and then other times it comes in so strong it about knocks you over. And that's how it was for me. It was, it was sometimes it, so it meant sometimes you take a step forward and then you took two steps back and then mm. forward and then sideways, like it wasn't linear. And I, that moment though of, t- a, of promising God, I'm not going to live my life the same. That moment mm. where I realized I have a second chance. Yeah. I have a second chance. Although I couldn't get traction for a little bit on that, it didn't leave me. It was something was planted inside me that I'm on borrowed time. Hmm. Like I've been giving a gift and I cannot waste that gift. And my friends wouldn't want me to, you know, they would want me to live fully. So I had a desire that started inside me from getting that second chance yeah and it just didn't ever leave and i kept trying to figure out what do i need to do how do i need to live my life with intention how can i live it on purpose what can i do different and it was the smallest steps over time that just added up in a big way like the first steps all i could do was make spiritual changes Mm. you know i literally couldn't I couldn't do anything, but I could pray. Yeah. You know, I could pray. And so those were very small. And then it was, you know, realizing how important my family was and my relationships with my friends and my family. So, you know, it was things like that. And then I remember it was really important to me that the credit union, the financial institution I worked at, that it didn't disappear. Right. Yeah. And it could have, it was a small financial institution. We could have easily merged with another financial institution. But those of us, there were five of us that remained, we felt mm. like if that happened, it meant that the memories of those we loved would disappear. And it was mm. kind of this weird, like, the credit union has to live because yeah. their memory has to live. I mean, it sounds silly, but it was so real to us. So I devoted a lot of time those first few years to actually work to getting it back up and running, which in a way is a... um not a distraction, but, you know, sometimes you do need to, you just, you can't focus 100% all day long on grief, right? So right, it gave right. me something else to focus on. Right. And in the process of learning how to make major changes in an organization, in a, I started learning this technique that would help me in my personal life. The CEO we hired to come in afterwards, she asked me one day, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? And I just kind of looked at her. I'm like, is this a trick question? Like, this is the boss. Like, how do you answer that one? And she's like, no, 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 you have a magic wand. There's no wrong answer. Like, you've got the magic wand. It's whatever you want to say. Hmm. And that sounds silly, but just saying that gave me the freedom to just suddenly, what do I want? And I started talking about what I wanted at work. And she said, okay, given your current situation and your current limitation, what are the smallest steps you can take to get there? write those down. That's your action step. Hmm. Well, I was thinking about how am I so great at work? You know, in my Mm -hmm. mind, I'm a superstar at work, but my personal life is awful. Hmm. Like, how come I can't translate that? And I took out a note card out of my desk one day and I thought, you know what, maybe I can. And I wrote on this note card, I want to go back to college. I want to get my degree. Mm. And on the other side, I wrote the very first step, which was look up the phone number to LSU. Hmm. because I knew I was going to have to get that 0.50 grade point average (laughs) if I was going to try to figure out where to go from there. And so it was literally the smallest steps, like the smallest steps. Mm. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I'm graduating with my degree and my confidence just went through the roof because I'm like, I did it. Like I couldn't pass our remedial math class and I just graduated top of my class, you know? Mm. And so I kept going. I got my master's And then it just started bleeding over into every area of my life because then it was just like, well, wait a minute, I don't have to believe these lies in my head. Like Mm, I don't do this. Yes, and it it, it all goes back to given your current situation, given your current limitations. So it's not like it's not like these ridiculous dreams and oh, I'm gonna and you've got no pathway, right? Because that doesn't lead to hope. So how I got to hope was hope is the idea that your future can be better and brighter than your past. And that you have a role to play in, in doing so and getting there. Mm-hmm. Well, that. in order to do that, you have to take responsibility for your life. Now, that's a big thing when you're a victim. Mm. Because I didn't make that bombing happen. Like, okay. that wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I had to take responsibility for what happened to me, even though it wasn't my fault. Because you mm. cannot move forward if you don't take responsibility for where you're at. Mm-hmm. So, and that is saying, okay, given my situation, given my limitations, I accept those. Now, now you talking to you in the mirror, mm-hmm. what are you going to do to move yourself toward this dream that you have, whatever that thing is. Yeah. And so that was how I started getting momentum and it brought hope. Cause as soon as I saw, okay, I can look up the phone number for LSU. Okay. I can go look for colleges that yeah. let people in that have a 0.50 <laughs> mm-hmm. okay I can you know I made the step so small that I had agency over it I could actually mm. do it and that right, brought right. me hope mm. and so it's just one thing and then you know it was, it, it's funny people are like oh my gosh I can't believe you did an Man." you know and okay so an Iron Man is a you know 2.4 mile swim Followed by a 112 mile bike ride and then a 26.2 marathon all within 17 hours. And the thing is, it it didn't start out that way. Right. It didn't start out with me going one day I'm going to be an Ironman. Like Mm. I didn't know what an Ironman was. It started out with, I just want my, I want to be able to fit on a ride with my son at the state fair. Mm. I want to, you know, be able to keep up with him. I want to be able to ride a bicycle. Like it started so small. And, but even that was big at the time, you know, because I've got to find a bike that'll hold me. I've got to, you know, figure out how to lose weight. Like it was big. And then you keep leveling it up because you keep asking yourself that question. And if you keep asking yourself your magic wand question or whatever the equivalent is, you know, that we do, then you will keep leveling up. And before you know it, it's gone from riding a bike for 15 minutes in my neighborhood to I'm going to ride my bike around the lake then it's to the next town, then it's mm. across the state, and then it, it just keeps building.
2: Yeah. And, and in that process, you lost 200 pounds
0: mm-hmm. and
2: did an Ironman competition. What was it like when when you, you know, crossed that finish line? Like, after having some of those goals, like, crossed off the list, what, what is that feeling like?
0: Okay, so I'm probably going to get emotional here because this just gets me every time. I can't ever tell the story without... <clears throat> but... So an Ironman is very difficult, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. And on mile seventeen of the run, so this is getting getting toward the end. I was looking at my watch, my Garmin sports watch, and and trying to calculate my time I had left. And I was struggling. I was walking. I was really struggling, and I thought I didn't have enough time left. Hmm. And so I prayed, and I remember my prayer was it went something like, "God, I don't care anymore." Like, this is stupid. I know I can do it. I just can't do it in the time. And like, I can't do this. So if for some reason I'm supposed to cross this finish line to help somebody, you're going to have to help get me there because I'm done. I don't Mm -hmm. care about this stupid thing anymore. I think I've said the word stupid like, you know, 50 (laughs) times. And my coach comes out of the darkness, out of nowhere. And she comes to encourage me. You're doing really great. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't have enough time. And she's like, no, it was a self-seated swim start. It wasn't a mass start where everybody started at the same time. I actually Ah. had 15 more minutes than I thought I had. And that's a huge lesson right there. Because as soon as your brain thinks you can do something or Mm. you can't do something, that's going to happen. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can make it. So I start picking up the pace. I'm going to do this thing. And I get close to the finish line and I can see the lights. It's like a little city. Like You can see the lights. I can hear the roar of the crowd. I hear Mike Riley, the voice of Iron Man, say, I hear it. I hear Amy's getting close to the finish line. Let's let her hear her. Let's make some noise. She's going to make it, and I hear this roar go up, and I enter the chute, and I look up, and I see myself on this big giant jumbotron. And I see all these hands. I can't even, the lights are so bright. I just see the hands sticking out through the darkness, like to high five me as I'm coming through. Wow. And I see my husband at the end, at the finish line. I see my coach standing there with a medal. And I see Mike Riley, who is the voice of Iron Man, who is saying, Amy Downs, you are an Iron Man." And they put that medal on me. And all I can think about is <clears throat> being a Christian and being taught that you know, this, we're to, we're to, you know, treat this as a race, you know, run mm, it like yeah. it's a race in thinking yep. about heaven. And, you know, what that event is going to be like, and that we're given this crown, but we're going to turn around and give it back, you know, and here I'm given this medal, you know, and I'm thinking <laughs> if this is what our human minds can dream up mm. for this amazing finish line, like, what is yeah. it going to be like one day, the next time I actually am faced with eternity, you know, yeah. so, uh-huh. yes, it was extremely emotional. And, it just taught me that I really can do what I set my mind to as long as I break it down in steps yeah. that I actually have control and agency over.
2: Yeah, that is beautiful. It's so I beautiful. I'm, I'm so proud over of you. here, Amy. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> and another interesting part of your story is that the same credit union that you were a part of then, you're now the CEO of. Yeah. I think that's extraordinary. Can you talk about that shift?
0: So let me tell you how extraordinary this is. Okay. So first of all, you know, I already told you I flunked flunked out of college. When I went for the interview for that teller job, the CEO walked in during the interview process and asked me what my birthday was. And of course, that's illegal now. You can't do that. But I told her my birthday and she goes, oh, you're an Aries which I didn't know what horoscopes were. So I didn't even know what that meant. Right. He turned to the lady interviewing me and she goes, we need another Aries. You need to hire her. No way. So swear, my job <laughs> qualification is my horoscope. Thank horoscope? God. Because my <laughs> grade point average would Wasn't not have helped Wasn't the GPA. Me. But then I was so bad at being a teller. I was so bad at the like math and the counting that the, this the guy who ran the snack bar upstairs, he was blind and he came down to get a pack of $1 bills. And I, Accidentally gave him a pack of a hundred dollar bills. No way. <laughs> so Amy. he's blind. He doesn't know it. So he goes back upstairs and thankfully he has an honest worker yeah. who tells him, Hey, these are, these are hundreds. He comes back down to my teller window, leans over and whispers so that nobody else can hear oh
2: my and goodness. tells
0: me, Hey, Amy, you gave me hundreds. Y'all, I called him my first day on my job as CEO. I called him. Did you to, really? I did. I called him and thanked him for my job.
2: <laughs> because oh, my you,
0: gosh. You should have been fired right then. I would That's... have been fired, right? <laughs> oh, oh, it is amazing so. that I got that job.
1: <laughs> so now CEO of the same bank that you were working at um, yes. in that April when the bombing happened. right? Which and I mean, crazy. I should say, I, I did go back. To, I'm not an incompetent. Right, <laughs> uh, no, I, no, I did go back were. to school,
0: I got my degree, I got my <laughs> MBA. And I also went to a CEO institute. So I prepared, you know, definitely prepared. And and it was one of my big goals that I went for. Yeah.
2: I love
1: it. I want to ask you another question about the bombing. You mentioned earlier that you did have to take responsibility, even though obviously you had nothing to do with the bombing, uh, but you had to take responsibility for what happened to you. What did it look like? And I don't actually remember. My memory is fuzzy on the trial for Timothy McVeigh, who has now, he's, he's, he's died a couple of years ago, um, He was executed actually a couple of years ago. What did that trial look like for you? And how did you have to deal with him as a person for what what he did that made you lose so many close friends and almost your own life? Right. Well, I didn't want any part of that trial. I really tried
0: to just, that's a thing over here. Like I can't deal Mm -hmm. with it. I don't want anything to do with it. But I got subpoenaed to testify in the penalty phase. Mm. So what that meant was... I had to fly to Denver and I had to be ready because they were confident they were going to get a guilty verdict. And I had to be one of the witnesses to come in and talk to the jury to for the jury to hopefully give the harshest sentence they could. So I had to go to Denver. I had to practice my testimony over and over again, which was to I was going to narrate a video that showed all of my coworkers alive. Because one of my wow. friends, this is back when video cameras were like these big things, yeah, on right? on your shoulder. She was from Colorado. She had brought her video camera in one day because she wanted to show her parents back home where she worked. So all these people that were killed are popping by, waving in the camera. Wow. So I was supposed to narrate for the jury, these are who all these people are, right? And so, so I was there to hear that guilty verdict come in. And I did not realize how much just that alone, just being in the courtroom and hearing guilty, your honor, I didn't realize how much healing that would bring, but it mm. did. And in fact, I had been going to counseling and I didn't go to counseling after that. It I just it was, I don't know, it was something I needed to hear. At the end, the judge declared that my testimony would be too emotional for the juries to the, the jurors to handle. So I didn't oh, wow. actually end up testifying. Hmm. but I was forced to go there and otherwise I wouldn't have been there and I got to hear that guilty verdict. So it was good. But, you know, I still kept trying to keep it this separate thing over here, these people that did it. And one day I was at a retreat uh, with my church and they were talking about forgiveness. And I was, I remember I was like on the front row and this person's talking about forgiveness and I'm like, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Preach it. You know? Yeah. We need to forgive, you know? And out of the blue, like the name Timothy McVeigh popped into my head. And I'm just mm. like, oh, 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 no, 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 nope. that does not mean that. Like, no. Yeah. And I just sat there kind of stunned thinking, ooh, ooh, no, I don't have to forgive him. Like, that's not a thing. And so I went and I found uh, my pastor's wife and I was like, hey, I just want to make sure I'm clear. I'm pretty sure I've got like this <laughs> legitimate loophole. Because one, he's dead. So he had already been executed. I'm like, he's dead. What he did was awful. He's not asking my forgiveness. He's dead. I'm not bitter. I don't ever even think about him. I'm not whatever. So like, that's not a thing. Like, I don't need to actually like forgive him. And she just kind of stared at me, you know, for a minute. And then she said, you know, the only thing I can really say to you is if we look at Jesus as the example In the Bible, I think we have to look to what he did while they were murdering him, Hmm. killing him. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, Hmm. you're kidding. Like he forgave them. Mm. Oh, my gosh. That's not what I wanted to hear. Right. And so, Second opinion. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. then so then it wasn't like, you know, oh, you know, OK, like I forgive you. Like, no, it didn't go like that. It was OK, God, if I'm supposed to do this forgiveness thing, like you got to help me like get there because I don't know. Yeah. So it was a process, wow. <laughs> a very long yeah. process.
2: Yeah. Yeah and you and you have forgiven him
0: you know and i still call it a process because as soon Mm. as i say you know yeah i've achieved it then you know because i had reached a point where actually i was even praying for nichols who was the other person that helped Mm -hmm. him who is still in prison and i would actually pray for him and Mm -hmm. pray for his salvation and wow. so, you know, wow. I was feeling pretty good. Like, yeah, I'm uh-huh. like I'm praying for him. Mm-hmm. Well, that ended, you know, and everything. And then one day in the paper, they'd interviewed him and he was not happy with the food they were serving him in prison.
1: Mm. It
0: upset his stomach. Mm-hmm. And hear me thinking I'm all mm-hmm. high and mighty and forgave somebody. mean, you should have heard me. I'm all like, uh-huh. oh, they don't like yeah. his food? Really? Well, yeah. I mean, I just, whoo. Yeah,
2: like, yeah. That's
0: why I say it's a process.
2: It's a process. <laughs> hey,
1: I'm sitting over here going, understandably that that would upset you. I mean, you know, and I think it is a process. And I think that we all have those processes in our life. And they just look different. Like, you know, I didn't survive the Oklahoma City bombing, but there are still things in my life that I'm like, God, I thought I worked through that. And I think I need to work through it again. And it is a process. And thankfully, our God is so kind to us to to not say, Jamie, Amy. We're not so, working with this again. Instead, yeah. he's like, we can continue to work right. on this. Right. Amy,
2: your, your story is incredible. I'm so glad that God spared your life and that just the transformation that you've experienced in every area, spiritual life, physical, professional life is just extraordinary. And I, I know that we're really grateful to have a conversation with you about this.
1: Oh, thank
0: you. It has been my honor.
2: Oh my gosh. I love Amy's story so much. There's so much hope laced throughout her whole story. One of my favorite parts is when she talked about running the race and actually getting to that finish line. What a cool picture and how she compared it to what heaven's going to be like when we get there. I just love that analogy.
1: I know. Did you see that I was crying during that analogy?
2: Yeah, I think you were imagining me at the end of like one of your races.
1: Well, I was imagining you at the end of my race, but I was also imagining God at the end of the race like she talked about. Her story was amazing. And you know, and I didn't plan on asking her about the Timothy McVeigh who was behind the bombing and I just thought, man, I wonder what her life has looked like since then and I was so grateful that I asked her that.
2: I was kind of wondering that too, the whole time. I didn't know if you were going to ask. I didn't know if I was going to ask, but I love that her answer was so honest and candid that forgiveness takes time. Forgiveness is a process. I just really was grateful for her sharing her story and hope that it's incredibly hopeful for for you as you're listening, um, no matter what you're going through, just to know that you can take little tiny steps, small little decisions in your life that can stack up, sometimes over 20, 30 years, to experience hope and transformation.
1: Guys, if you want to hear more from Amy, check out her book, Hope is a Verb, which, Erin, what does Hope is a Verb make you think of?
2: Love is a Verb, DC Talk.
1: Taking it way back. Hope is a Verb by Amy Downs is out now, and you can find that. Amy, thanks for coming on the show today. Today's show was mixed and edited by Erin Campbell. Show notes were written by Abby Castell. Show graphics and videos were made by Rachel Ray. And the show is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Please share this show with a friend if you loved it. It's how most people find out about podcasts. Thank you for listening to On the Other Side with Jamie and Erin Ivey.